115. Uh, this particular psalm does not tell us who it is written by. We'll address that in just a moment. But please follow along beginning in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Father God, we thank you for this time to consider this psalm. We pray that you would open it up to us, that we might not only know its truths, but that they might be applied to our living for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The primary occupation, or might I say the chief preoccupation of every saint of every believer is to be the worship and glorifying of God. Everything we do comes back to that point. This is to be every believer's all-encompassing focus in this life. It is truly to be the vocation of all believers throughout the ages. God's people have been redeemed and therefore are to rejoice and to glorify him both now and forever. This is, according to the Westminster Divines, the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the magnification of God's matchless name and his character. No matter what surrounds a person's life, whether it be times of prosperity or seasons of adversity, whether it be times of blessing or times of buffeting, it is always the believer's duty to delight in glorifying and praising the Lord. To put it another way, it is your highest calling. It is your greatest duty. It is, again, to be the pre chief preoccupation of every mind. Last week, Sean introduced for us Psalm 113, a psalm that calls all believers to the singular purpose of praising the Lord. 
Recall Psalm 113 began with that very familiar declaration, praise the Lord, and it ended the same way in verse 9 with praise the Lord. That simple proclamation is a soul-stirring praise that serves as the beginning and end, the book ends, and the brackets of Psalm 113. I remind you of this, I remind you of Psalm 113 because it begins what is known as the Egyptian Hallel. And the Hallel are Psalms 113 through Psalm 119. The six Psalms of which Psalm 113 is the first, they were sung at the great religious festival. So every time there was a religious festival, they would sing these particular hymns, Psalm 113 through 118. At the Passover feast, Psalms 113 and 114 were sung before the meal, and then immediately after the meal, Psalms 115 through 118 were read. This morning we consider Psalm 115. It is the third of the Hillel hymns, but it is also the first hymn that would have been sung after the Passover meal. What is Psalm 115? Psalm 115 is a testimony of God up and against the world's ignorance of God. We'll see the ignorance of man in what he tries to accomplish as the work of his hands up and against he who is the Lord alone. The psalm answers two very basic questions for us. What is God and where is God? We find out what God is. We also find out where he is. While what seems to be a simple truth to we who believe, the truth declared by the psalm is quite pointed that the Lord alone is God, the one who resides in heaven, who rules over all, who lives forevermore, who protects and prospers his people. This is the Lord alone, and looking to anyone or anything other than that is foolishness, and it will result in your destruction. This is the God who, according to Psalm 115, the statement of God's true identity then being contrasted with the false gods of the pagan nations. These false gods, in comparison to all who God is and and what he is like and where he resides, these gods were nothing. But as the psalmist declares, I guess they weren't nothing, they're dumb idols. There is only one God, the, the God of Israel, He's the maker of heaven and earth, we've read. But rather than some mount some profound philosophical defense for the existence of God, isn't that what everybody, prove to me that there's a God. I love the question, prove to me that there's a God. You know what your best retort is? Prove to me there isn't a God. But what I find interesting is the Bible that has endured for thousands of years now, the Bible that has been the impetus for all sorts of good throughout humanity, the Bible does not mount a philosophical defense for the existence of God, and neither does this psalm. It does exactly what we find in the opening verses of Scripture itself, making not a defense for God, simply making the declaration that God is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our psalmist begins this psalm with a very similar declaration through his words. He simply declares the fact that God is God. 
that he repudiates all the false deities, the thought of pledging allegiance to anything that is man-made, much less an idol, is preposterous and in the psalmist's mind is spiritual insanity. There is only one God, the true God, the God revealed in creation, the God revealed through history, the God of the scriptures, the Lord over the nations, and according to Psalm 115, he happens to also be Israel's redeemer, and today we would know him as well as our redeemer because it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me come back to this question first posed by the Westminster divines when they asked in the shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? And many of you know the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You could stop with that question and simply ask yourself, do you glorify God? Well, how do I know if I'm glorifying God? Well, the answer is there. Do you enjoy God? Do you delight in him? I submit to you that if we would get this principle that our chief preoccupation in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, if we would strive to live each day in according to that, your, our lives would be so immensely blessed, more than we can imagine. And so by way of application and practicality, I ask you, does such a thought that your life is to glorify him, is that what governs you when you wake up in the morning? Is that what guides you throughout the day? Is that what you ask yourself at the end of the day when you lay your head on the pillow? I've glorified God this day. Well, you might ask, what does it mean to glorify God? I'm glad you asked. Simply put, and as our big idea, well, and it's not a big idea, just let me define this. To glorify God is to make God look good. I know that's kind of cheesy vernacular for us today. You want to put God on display in your life. People should be seeing God in your life, not you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, should be manifested. The glorify God is to make him look good, to reveal him in your words, to display him in your deeds, to present him as he truly is. To glorify God is, again, to put him on display as best as we are able. It is to put on display God's perfect attributes, his moral excellence, and his eternal grandeur along with his infinite worth. I be Beloved, if we would so strive to live our lives in light of that aim of glorifying God and all that we do, what kind of impact would that have in our lives? How would that positivity impact our marriages by asking the question, will the words that I'm about to speak or the actions I'm about to take with my spouse, will they bring glory to God? And if I were to determine that they are not, even if I feel like I want to say or do those things, I will not because I will say it won't fit with what I know to be my purpose, which is to glorify God. The same principle is to be true in our relationship to our children. The same, relationship, the same principle is true in the relationship of our children to the parents. If what I'm about to do will not glorify God, then I will not do it. 
To put it another way, if I am not displaying the fruit of the Spirit as laid out by Galatians 5.22, then I am not glorifying God. If I am not exhibiting the qualities of 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7, then I'm not glorifying God. As believers, we're called to live our lives in such a way that everything we do brings glory to God. Am I overstating it? Let me remind you, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, that means that Psalm 115 is a very practical hymn for us, calling believers to live in such a way as to bring glory to God. And so as the big idea, I submit to you this, that if God is to be rightly glorified, we must forsake all idolatry, we must look to God for all our needs, and we must bless the Lord all our days. If God is to be rightly glorified, if we're going to put him on display in our lives, Every idol must be forsaken. Every need must be that to which we look to God for provision, and we must bless the Lord all our days. A little bit about Psalm 115. It was most likely written after Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity. That would make it around 536 B.C. It was at this time that Israel was under the leadership of men like Zerubbabel and then Ezra and Nehemiah. While rebuilding, Israel endured much opposition and mocking from the pagan nations that had moved into the land while they were in exile in Babylon. Israel was few in number, and they were weak. But during their exile in Babylon, Israel learned a lesson that they would never repeat that they had constantly repeated before. And what is that lesson? They had come to learn the futility of worshiping idols and they would never worship idols again. Coming back into the land, Israel saw the pagan nations around them doing what? Worshiping idols, and that appalled the psalmist, and that inspired this psalm. In verses 1 through 3, we find him crying out to God, pleading that the Lord would bring glory to his name in light of the pagans who were mocking them by saying what? Where now is your God? The psalmist will go on to mock the insanity of idolatry in verses 4 through 8 and then call God's people to trust the Lord alone to bless them in verses 9 through 15. As a result, God's people will respond by what? They will bless and praise the Lord as long as they live, according to verses 16 through 18. So we will consider the psalm in four points. We will see that Yahweh, or the Lord alone, is to be glorified. Yahweh is to be worshipped, Yahweh is to be trusted, and finally Yahweh is to be praised forever. Just by a reminder for some of you, uh, the capital L-O-R-D is simply a, a way of signifying the Hebrew word for Yahweh, sometimes translated Jehovah. So when I say Yahweh, you can just know that whenever you see the word, all caps, Lord, that's the Lord's covenantal name so let's begin with the first point Yahweh alone is to be glorified notice in verses 1 uh, beginning uh, beginning in verse 1 the statement made not to us O Lord not to us but to your name give glory 
My intention this morning is to be applicational and practical in our look at the psalm. And so from these opening three verses, let us note four exhortations, beginning with this first one. Very simply, do not take God's glory for yourself. We have a very bad habit of taking God's glory. That should be on up there if you put that up. Do not take God's glory for yourself. Notice the repetition in the opening phrase. As if it's not enough to say it just once. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. The repetitiveness, not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name give glory. That reminds us something of our nature. We have a tendency to take some of God's glory for ourselves. We want to make ourselves look good, and we do it at the expense of God. No wonder sometimes the world looks at Christians and says, well, they're just full of themselves. The world needs to see Christ in us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. This is something, by the way, the the stealing or the taking of God's glory to ourselves is something that the Lord has repeatedly prohibited throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah 42, 8, the Lord says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. You're not going to make anything that is going to somehow represent my glory because I will not allow it. On the same theme, Yahweh declares in Isaiah 48 verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, notice the repetition, I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. Now, I'm sure at some level you've all, you all agree with this, yet the truth is we are all prone and we are all guilty of taking some, even if it be the slightest, of God's glory to ourselves. And the question now should be, well, how do we do that? The most glaring area in which we find even professing believers taking God's glory to themselves is with regard to salvation. That is, somehow, even so slightly, based upon, it's based upon something that I have done, I have contributed on the basis of of the element of my own good works. It's interesting that one of the questions that we often ask at membership interviews for the church after hearing a person's testimony is this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How, you, how would you respond? It's a very interesting question because you'll be surprised how many people all of a sudden kind of him and haw. Uh, well, I've done this and I've done that and I've, I've believed. And uh, I mean, okay. What would you say? I'm very grateful that our members solidly speak of their trust in Christ and his work alone. But I ask because someone on the street, if you were to ask that question, may answer something like this. Well, because I'm basically a good person. 
uh, well, I've done far more good things than bad, or I've got something, you know, the Lord saw something in me. And even among those who confess that they trust in Christ alone, there's yet that tendency to take some kind of credit for salvation. There are those who would say that the doctrine of election means that God foresaw who would believe in him by their own free will. And so based on that good work, God now chooses them. Well, guess what? Now the glory has been transferred from God to the decision that has been made. It is not biblical in any shape, manner, or form to say that God saw something I would do and use that to choose me because it takes glory from him. That stands in contrast to what we find in scripture. Such a theology makes salvation dependent first upon the will of man rather than the will of God. The sovereign choice of God is subject then to something good, something else, something beyond him that he foresees in those who believe. Beloved, what it means is that grace is no longer grace. You cannot have grace, unmerited favor, where it is merited. That God's undeserved favor is in fact deserved. In such a case, there is no such thing as the doctrine then of divine election. Rather, it is the doctrine of human will. And by this, we rob God of his glory. According to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, and we sang part of that as our opening hymn this morning, it is God alone who chooses us by his own sovereign will, according to his grace, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his name. We rob God's glory if we say anything else. Are there other ways in which believers may be inclined to rob God of his glory? The church at Corinth was guilty of boasting in their spiritual gifts. They robbed God of their glory by saying, look at what we do for God in the church. It was so bothersome that Paul had to remind them in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, rhetorically asking them the question, what do you have that you did not receive? How did you come up with this? Reminds me of Job's encounter with God at the end of the book of Job. He says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Beloved, everything that we have spiritually is the result of God's grace alone. Therefore, all glory belongs to him. The psalmist begins with these words calling believers, do not rob God of his glory. To this point, Charles Spurgeon made this note. He said, if you meet it with a system of theology which magnifies man, flee from it as far as you can. Here's a test for you to apply. And by it, you may tell whether a thing is true or not. Does it glorify God? Then accept it. If it does not, if it glorifies man, puts human will, human ability, human merit into the place of the mercy and the grace of God, away with it, for it is not food fit for your souls to feed upon. How's that? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Well, the second exhortation, 
Not only are we not to take God's glory to ourselves, we are to proclaim the loving kindness and truth of the Lord. Verse verse 1 ends with the psalmist pleading with God to bring himself glory because of what? Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. It's not going to be because of us. It's going to be because of you, your mercy, your grace, your truth, your faithfulness. The word loving kindness is simply another word for grace. Salvation is rooted in God's choosing us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, to the praise and glory of his grace, Ephesians 1.6, and it's God's truth or faithfulness. This means that what he says and what he does are always consistent with who, with himself. In other words, when God promises something, guess what? It will be done. Everything that God does for us, you know, get this, because this runs counter to what we hear so often. Every single thing that God does is first and foremost for himself and his glory. And secondarily, then, it benefits us. It's always about what brings him glory first And then that's what brings benefit to us. We need to meditate often on these two attributes of loving kindness or grace and truth or faithfulness. The shortest psalm of the Bible, Psalm 117, if you just look at it, I don't don't think we put it up on the board, but uh, the second, well, we're not to see yet. The shortest verse of, uh, shortest psalm of the Bible, just look at Psalm 117 there in your Bibles, two verses. And it demands that we meditate on two attributes of God. Do you see them? Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. How's that? Why did that make it into the, the Holy Scriptures? So short, so simple. Remember God's grace and remember God's truth. Beloved, apart from God's loving kindness and truth, apart from his grace and his faithfulness, all would be eternally lost in sin and condemnation. According to the psalmist, by meditating on those two qualities, we are more apt to glorify him. Well, there's a third exhortation. And the third exhortation is this. Do nothing that would taint God's glory among unbelievers we see that in verse 2 why should we be living our lives in such a way so that the nations around us would say where now is their God can you imagine the psalmist has to write this it is a reminder that this is a very distinct possibility In Numbers chapter 14, if you're familiar with it, verses 15 and 16, when God had threatened to destroy the complaining Israelites in the wilderness, it was Moses who pleaded with the Lord saying that if you destroy these people, that what would the pagan nations conclude? They would would say that the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And so the Lord pardoned Israel, not for their sakes, but for the sake of his name. 
for centuries after, Israel would continue to sin and taint the glory of God until the Lord eventually said, enough of this. And he calls for the nation of Babylon to come and destroy Jerusalem. He takes the majority of the people captive to Babylon. And according to the prophet Ezekiel, who was present in all of this, Israel, it is said, had profaned the name of the Lord among the nations. They had tainted the name of God in front of other unbelievers. And yet even when they did this, God's grace prevailed. Why? Because God promised Israel that he would regather them from the nations in order to restore them to the land again. He says, not because of you, not for your sake, but for the glory and greatness of my name. In other words, men are weak and pathetic, but that will not be the picture that I portray to the nations. I will be glorified. My name will be exalted. They may profane it, but I will proclaim it. And the application, I believe, is clear. As believers, we are not to do anything or say anything that would give unbelievers grounds for mocking us to say, where now is your God? Where is your God? Do you know the best testimony that we have that God exists? They're like, we just talked about we're not trying to get philosophical. You don't have to be philosophical to prove that God exists. Do you know the best way to communicate that God exists? By your changed life. By the things that now are clearly preoccupying your mind and your heart. So if someone says, where now is your God? They have to look and say, your life stands in complete contrast to everything I see in this world. And if they happen to have known you before you became a Christian, they should be really able to say, I know where your God is. He's in me. By taking God's glory to ourselves or behaving in ways that are clearly contrary to what God has revealed, we provide the world the ammunition they need to mock our God. And so we are to avoid even the appearance of evil. We avoid anything that would feed the world's desire to mock God. Well, then the final exhortation here, that we're to ponder the absolute sovereignty of God. If we would rightly glorify God, we must ponder the absolute sovereignty of God. Verse 3, but our God is where? He's in the heaven. And what does our God do? He does whatever he pleases. There are so many verses that remind us of God's sovereignty over everything in this universe. Such a truth brought down the mighty king of Babylon. You might recall it was Nebuchadnezzar who said this in Daniel 4.25. This is a pagan king who made this declaration. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Oh, I know there's people that think they're glib enough to be able to say that. You can go on YouTube and find uh, rank atheists or agnostics that say, I'll say it out loud. Well, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm going to thwart you. What have you done? And that's not really the gist there, is it? You really want to mock God that way? He will bring you down. 
If he brought down Nebuchadnezzar, he can bring down some pathetic YouTube atheist. It was Job after being rebuked by the Lord who proclaimed this in Job 42.2. I know that you, Lord, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that no purpose of God will ever be thwarted? Do you believe it? I'm not getting any baptistic moment here. Amen? Okay, you say you believe it. Do you live like that? Because we say it all day long in our churches. We'll say it in our Bible studies, but something gets lost in translation in our lives where somehow now we're worried about the politics and we're worried about this world and we're worried about uh, different issues of safety. And I understand there's a degree to that, but do we ultimately proclaim that God is in control? There's a great hymn I would encourage you to look up. It says, it's, it's entitled, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. It's like got 3,000 verses to it. So it'll take you a while to get It's not quite that long. I think there's like 10 verses. Read that. Go look it up and read that and see if that matches up with your life. Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. That's free. I didn't have that in my notes, so. The prophet Isaiah, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declared in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, For I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Do you believe that? No one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient, day, ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I am so grateful that that is our God. What is our God? He's sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign. He doesn't have some just minor sovereignty over a little territory. He's sovereign over all the earth. He's sovereign over all the universe. And in Psalm 115, verse 3, to declare that God does whatever he pleases, it does not mean that our God is somehow unstable or unpredictable, that he means that God will accomplish whatever he purposes to do and whatever it is that pleases him. And in case you're worried that he might go off somehow in some evil direction, it's always according in verse 1 to what? Loving kindness and truth. God is not the author of evil. Evil displeases him, yet God is not frustrated by evil, and our God is so sovereign, he will use evil to accomplish the purposes that he set out to do. And that is the God to whom we owe our, uh, we are to glorify. Well, the second point, Yahweh alone is to be worshipped. Yahweh alone is to be worshipped. In verses 4 through 8, the psalmist, in order to press his call to praise and glorify the Lord alone, launches into what is nothing short of a mocking attack against idolatry. Idols are the work of man. Verse 4, the idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. There's this sarcasm here. The psalmist mentions this by saying that the best of the best when it comes to idols you know, when you, today we have something better than silver and gold, right? You, you might have the bronze level and the silver level and the gold level used to be the standard. Now we have what? The platinum level. Well, what the psalmist is saying, you take the best of the best of your idols. 
Make them out of silver or gold rather than the cheap old pieces of wood. And I say to you that even at its best, the most sophisticated and glamorous of idols are in the end still what? The works of a man's hand. It was not silver or gold that gives life. And so who in their right mind would bow before such things and worship them? Hosea 8.6 puts it best by saying, a craftsman made it so it is not God. I love that. A craftsman made it so it's not God. That's what he says about idols in, in Hosea 8.6. Well, not only are idols the work of man, we see that idols are lifeless in verses 5 through 8. The, we went through that litany there of uh, they have mouths and they have eyes and they have ears and they have noses and they have hands and they have feet, but they can't do anything that you would expect those things to bring about. He, we read of the idols, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. That which is man-made cannot reveal truth apart from God's truth. They are unable to inform us how to live. They are incapable of explaining to those who bow down the difference between right and wrong. They cannot reveal things about themselves. They can never give comfort when they suffer, when we suffer. The psalmist goes on to say, they have eyes, but they cannot see. No idol ever sees your circumstances and goes, oh, that's really bad that they're going through. I should try to intervene. They cannot see you when you bow down before them. And so the goal is, or the, the point is, why are you bowing before a blind God? In verse 6, we read, they have ears, but they cannot hear. That which is man-made cannot hear your prayers. I'm reminded of the prophets of uh, Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember that they were trying to get God, their gods to um, you know, come and consume the, the sacrifices they made. What did they do? They cut themselves, it says, and they wailed all day long to their gods, but their gods were idols. They could not hear. They could not act. They could not respond. Read the account later today if you'd like and see how uh, Elijah mocks them for that. We read, and again in verse 6, they have noses, but they cannot smell. This would be in contrast to the living God who does smell. Did you know that? God smells the sacrifices of incense offered up in the Old Testament. It's God who receives the sacrifices of our service and praise if we have trusted in Christ. Consider how Paul speaks of this in Philippians 4.18, where we read this. Paul says, uh, but I, Paul, have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus that which you have sent. Listen, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. A fragrant, your service is a fragrant aroma to God. And he smells it, however that works. But back to our psalm. Verse 7, they have hands, but they cannot feel. Idols are unable to take hold of any gifts that are ever placed before them. I have read that in the, in the temple in Nepal, there's a temple in Nepal, and the monkeys feast on the offerings that are set before the idols. The, the whole point is, how does a dead idol hear? How does a dead idol provide? How does a dead idol save? They can't do anything. Verse 7 goes on to say, idols have feet, but they cannot walk. Idols are dependent upon the ones who worship them to get themselves around. 
Where is our God? He's omnipresent. Where do you have to carry your God? I can't. Where does your God carry you? Everywhere, we would say. Additionally, we read that they cannot make a sound with their throat. Idols cannot speak. They cannot even groan. They are lifeless. They are worthless. And this is what we read in verse 8. Listen, those who make those idols will become like them. So go back and read the list. You will become the very thing that you worship. Isn't that an interesting thought? You will become like that which you worship. You know, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying that I'm going to be like God? Are we not? We will not be God, but we receive the divine nature that we are made, created in the image of God, and we will become all that God desires us to be as we worship him. And if you worship anything else, you will become what that other thing is, and it will be to your doom. Ultimately, anyone who does not know the living and true God they are the ones who, like their idols, are now spiritually blind, deaf, dumb, dead. They are unaware of spiritual truth. They are spiritually crippled. And why would anyone worship such idols? Now, we run into a problem, and that problem is how do we in our modern-day culture, as modern-day Christians living in the United States, how do we see the worship of idols in our country? Because we, we always think of, a, you know, this is an idol, and I'm going to bow down and worship it. Uh, how do we see this? By and large, we do not see people literally bowing down before images, but we do see mass idol worship most presently through the flying of a rainbow trans flag that makes worthy lifestyles or seems tries to make worthy lifestyles and behaviors that are clearly contrary to God and his word as somehow normal. That flag is an idol. When, you, when Laura and I walked through the streets of Seattle and you couldn't pass a business without a flag being out there, those were idols lining the streets. We see idols and things Christian as the Roman Catholic Church venerates and literally does bow down to idols. Statues of Mary as the mother of Jesus and other saints. But there's a spirit of idolatry that we must be constantly aware of. Namely, that an idol is simply the putting of anything or anyone before God. The idols of the nations were simply putting something in the place of God before God. And so the question I have to you, if you think you are above idol worship, is what is it that you put before God? God alone is to be worshipped. And at the core of all idolatry is the thought that by using or appeasing or serving whatever idol it is, that that's how I'll get what I want. And it is possible then to profess Christ and yet then try to use him to get what you want rather than to do what he wills. And do you know that what that is? When you seek to use God to get what you want rather than to do what he wills, that, my friends, is idolatry. And that is not the worship of God. To guard ourselves from idols, we must be in constant submission then to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ. They try to use God to get what they want, and then they put him back on the shelf. They 
are not living in daily submission to his lordship. They are not devoted to him in worship. They are just using him when they think he might work for them. That's the idolatry of our day. It does not glorify God. The Lord alone is to be worshipped. Well, it brings us to our third point. Yahweh alone is to be trusted. Not just glorified, not just worshipped, but he's also to be trusted. How do we trust him? Well, let's break this down. We trust in the Lord for help. Verses 9 through 11, the psalmist calls his readers to look to the Lord alone. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. How much different are those who worship the God of the Bible? They do not come to the Lord with images. Rather, they come to the Lord reciting his promises and his blessings, and they have his protection. Notice the three entities mentioned in those verses, Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. And all are met with a promise. Did you see what the promise is? O Israel, O house of Aaron, O you who fear the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The way this psalm was used in the worship of Israel was that the congregation would be divided into two sections, like this side and that side, right? Just like we have set up here. And one group would make the call, and the other would answer with the statement of God's help. And so we have this particular statement. One side would say, O Israel, trust in the Lord. And the other side would say, He is their help and their shield. And that would go back and forth. It's called an antiphony. When we first read of Israel, which speaks comprehensively of the covenant people of God, this was written to Israel, but if we were to apply it to us today, we would say, church, trust in the Lord. Church, trust in the Lord. Regardless of whether you are a member or a regular attender, if you are of Christ's church, then you must, according to this psalm, trust God to help you and God to defend you. We next read of the house of Aaron, which would speak of those who led the worship. What a reminder that those who lead God's people in worship need to be exhorted to trust in the Lord as much as those who are in the congregation. Why? Because we're all sheep. We all need the Lord. Finally, there are those who are, the call, who are called you who fear the Lord. This speaks of those who truly follow the Lord. Those, these are those whose religion is not cultural. It is not familial. It, it is uh, not just something spiritual, something they just do out of routine. All people need to be reminded that true religion, true trust, is looking to the Lord at all times, especially in times of trial. So how do we glorify God? We glorify God when we trust him. How do we glorify God? We glorify God when we trust him to bring us the help. How do we glorify God? It's when we look to him for protection and for provision. As the Lord reminded his people in Psalm 50, verse 15, saying, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you. Listen to this. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. 
Did you catch this? Call upon me in the day of trouble. You're going to have trials. I will rescue you. There's my promise. And what will be the result? You will praise me. Well, we move on. Not only do we trust the Lord for help in verses 12 through 15, note that we trust the Lord for blessing. In verse 12, the psalmist reminds the people saying, the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. How do you get past that verse? The God of all creation, the God who is infinite, the God who is so complex and beyond our understanding, so infinite that we can't fully fathom his ways. He's mindful of you. He sees you in your troubled times. He sees you in your happy times. And then he makes the, here's the promise. He will bless, he will bless us. Beginning at the end of verse 12 into verse 13, he speaks of three groups of people. This is the same three peop groups uh, he said before, comforting them, saying, he will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. I love this last statement. Here the Lord reminds his people that there are not some spiritual elite who alone receive God's blessing. You young ones here, there you are in the same position if you trust Christ to receive every bit as much of the blessing of the Lord as anyone who has been walking with the Lord for 30, 40, 50 or more years. There are no spiritual elite among God's people. You may feel yourself to be lowly. You may think yourself insignificant. You may feel inadequate in the service of the Lord. Yet the promise is that he knows you. He's mindful of you. And he promises to do what? Bless you. Well, what must I do? Just trust him. Depend on him. In verses 14 and 15, the psalmist speaks of some of the blessings very key to, to in the time of Israel. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. You see, this stands in stark contrast to everything he just said about those idols, does it not? It is the Lord who's the maker of all things. The idols can't do, nothing, can do anything. He is able and he's willing to bring the resources needed not only to the present generation, but he says to the generations to come. We as parents can sometimes get worried about the world that we're leaving our children. And understandably, there's just some weird stuff out there. But God will provide. God will provide for them. And God will enable them to be a witness in a dark world. And it may be completely different than anything we could have ever imagined or wanted for our children, but God is sufficient for their lives. I'd have you note that the word bless is found five times in verses 12 through 15. Four verses, five times. God's people are exhorted to seek God's blessing. How? By trusting him. Just trust him and the blessings will come. Do you desire God's blessing in your life? Do you pray for his abundant blessings to be poured out upon you and your family? Do you pray that those blessings be poured out on your church? Do you find or do you find yourself dismayed when you don't see what you want to see? 
really, what should you be dismayed at? You should be dismayed when God's kingdom suffers. And so we pray that the Lord would be glorified and that his people would continually trust him. And in so doing, they will be blessed. In all this, God's people are to trust just one thing, the Lord alone for protection and blessing. Idolatry is when we look to other things than the Lord for those things, then we, then we fail to bring him glory. So let this lesson uh, let this lesson be learned and let us seek to trust him to be our helper, trust him to be our defender, help him, uh, trust him to be the source of all of our blessings. And it brings us to our final point. Yahweh alone is to be praised forever. Verse 15 actually ends, uh, reminds us that the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. It's revealing his sovereignty and control over all creation. In verse 16, then, we actually see not just his sovereignty. Again, verse 15 uh, ends with that uh, particular statement saying, May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, his sovereignty. Now he moves to his supremacy. The heavens and the earth, uh, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. He's over all his created earth. He's over and in every place where the sons of men are. It is he who created men in the image of God. It is he who has shared his idea of sovereignty and dominion with humanity because he says, I've given you dominion over all the earth. Unlike an idol that has no involvement and is impotent to help men, God aids his creation on earth from heaven. Verse 16 ends with the same affirmation as that of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that the Lord has entrusted humanity with the dominion of the earth. And you know who he's trusted the dominion of the earth to today? Those who are in Christ. We are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it ends as we praise the Lord for his supremacy. Finally, we praise the Lord as we are able in every situation. Verse 17, we read of the dead, that is, those who have left this earth. These in such a condition, he writes, can no longer praise God here. They go down into the grave, he writes, only to remain silent. And there's a little bit of a debate here. Are we talking about there, there's two ways to understand this. Praise the Lord as long as you have breath, because when you're dead, you're not going to praise the Lord. You're, you're in the ground. No one on this earth is going to hear you. It could be, though, that verse 17 is a reference to those who never will praise the Lord in this life or the life to come. Because in verse 18, we see that those who are presently living, they will not only bless the Lord on this earth now, but they will bless the Lord when? Forever. Now Spurgeon, kind of taking that first tact, he says this, Though the dead cannot, the wicked will not, and the careless do not praise God, yet we will shout, Hallelujah, forever and ever. One way in which we exercise our dominion on earth is to praise the Lord all our days. So praise him as you are able. Praise him in the morning. Praise him in the noontime. Praise him when the sun goes down. Beloved, if God is to be rightly glorified, we must forsake all idolatry. We must look to the Lord for all of our needs. 
and we must bless the Lord all of our days. It's the final slide. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so we proclaim with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the exhortations of this particular psalm. We thank you that it points us to rightly glorify you, to rightly worship you, to rightly trust you, and to rightly praise you. I pray that we would come to desire that, to manifest that more in our lives, and we know it all begins by having that relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I pray for any who have not yet confessed with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in their heart that you raised him from the dead as the only atonement, only satisfaction for their sin. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would be able to cry out with the rest of us, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Father God, bless us as we leave this place. Allow us to live our lives in such a way that others may say they have been with Jesus. To the praise and exaltation of your name for the building up of your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name.